Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. By this point, you've most likely heard about the email sent to hospital executives by Epic CEO Judy Faulkner, urging them to join Epic in expressing disapproval for a proposed rule regarding sharing of medical information. For this special episode, we have an interview our president and CEO, Joe Pfeiffer, did with Faulkner last fall about Epic's humble start in a Wisconsin basement and the leadership philosophies that guide the company today. This interview got a lot of attention when we first released it, and with good reason. It's fascinating. First, though, Rich Daly and Chad Mulvaney are here discussing how Judy Faulkner is making headlines right now. It was recently reported that electronic health record firm Epic might join a lawsuit against U.S. Department of Health and Human Services if that department finalizes regulations for data sharing that the company sees as deeply flawed. So we just want to get a quickly check in with Chad Mulvaney and uh, see if there's uh, something here healthcare finance leaders should be paying to in particular. Hey, Rich. You know, Judy sent out a comment letter to Epic clients asking them to sign on. You know, there's there's a bit of a yin and yang here with any regulatory effort. Obviously, one of the things you have to be concerned about is patient privacy and safety, and certainly that is paramount. But by the flip side of it, you always want, at least initially, for the government where possible to go in with the lightest touch in regulating, because if they accidentally over-regulate, it's pretty hard to walk that back. And you and I could probably sit here and spend the next two hours coming up with instances where that's happened. So I, I, I see her point. The flip side of it is, is obviously consumers need access to their data, particularly if we're going to move to a healthcare system where that data is portable and it's used to drive care improvements and also help patients make decisions based on their own values for care. The other thing I will note is, you know, right now, depending on who your EHR vendor is, or for most of your EHR vendors, from what I hear from our members, these tools are incredibly good at capturing data. It is pretty problematic to actually get data out and do something with it. You know, in terms of the comment letter that she sent out to her clients, you know, we often will share our comment letters with others. And I guess the thing that even when with our members or with other associations, you know, read it, consider it, think about whether what she's stating is fully aligned with your organization's best interest and your patient's best interest. And if it is, take the pieces of it that are very aligned with where you're going and what you believe to be best for your patients and use them. Leave the rest on the table. If you'd like to hear more from Rich and Chad, you can listen to the Beyond the News segment of the Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast, where they discuss their takes on recent events. In the meantime, here's Joe Pfeiffer's interview with Epic CEO, Judy Faulkner. I'm Joe Pfeiffer, President and CEO of the Healthcare Financial Management Association. My guest today built her company literally from the ground up. Judy Faulkner invented Epic in a Wisconsin basement in 1979, developing an iconic enterprise worth $2.9 billion today. 40 years after starting the company, she still serves as CEO. And I'm thrilled to have her today to talk about what it takes to build and run a big company. Judy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Joe. So today, Judy, I'd like to ask you about running such a big enterprise in Honestly, I, I don't, I've never spoken to someone that literally grew a multi-billion dollar company from their garage. So <laughs> can you just talk a little bit about how different are the challenges you face in running Epic now compared to when you're getting the company off the ground you know, 40 years ago? 
Well, when Epic started, I had no experience whatsoever in business and management and anything. And so I had to figure it out. I think that it was interesting for my family too, because my husband had to watch me change from someone who we always saw in blue jeans, t-shirts, no makeup, to someone who had to dress professionally. And that was a hard change for everyone. And probably symbolic of other changes. Very much so. I had to learn about everything. I had to figure out how to write a contract, how to do a policy manual. What about budgets? We don't have any. Dress code. When they're visitors, you must wear clothes. That's our dress (laughs) code. Do we have venture capital? Nope. Uh, Should we go public? No. So those were the things that I had to worry about then. Those were all easy decisions. But what was hard to learn were all the people things. How do you talk with people? How do you have difficult conversations? How do you get everybody to turn right or turn left? Those were the tricky things. You you know, it's an an incredible amount of detail when you think of all those questions. But but the last comment you made about, because you're, you're starting to talk a little bit about culture, and I wanted to know, you've developed such a dynamic organization, and how do you maintain that type of dynamic environment you know, that you had when that spawned that, that early startup? And how do you avoid getting stagnant in your large organization today? A vice president of HR from a large company once came over to visit us asking that same question. And he said, what do we do to keep the culture? And I said, nothing. And so he spent three days going around the company and he came back with his pencil and pad of paper and said that we do more than any company he has ever been in. We didn't realize it. We were doing it intuitively without thinking about it. And so some of the things we do, we have a corporate philosophy class that everybody attends. I teach it. It's about six hours long. And it helps everybody understand why does Epic exist and what are we trying to accomplish and what's their part in it. We have a monthly staff meeting that everybody goes to. You're required to go to it. And if you want to skip the staff meeting, you have to have write-off from your team lead, from the president of the company, and from me. So we take it very seriously. And some of our staff say it's a really high point of the month. (laughs) Uh, That helps everybody understand where we're going and how to go the same direction. The early part of your answer and the fact that you say you, you do nothing and then you rattle off a whole bunch of things that you do that you're personally engaged in. The thing that jumps out to me is the message of integrity is because it's coming from your heart. That's what I'm hearing in your answer. When I took a class one time, they asked, why do you come to work? And they gave six potential reasons. One, for the paycheck. Two, for something it's testing to do. Three, for your coworkers. Four, for your customer. Five, for the competition. And six, for the mission. And... I ask our new employees why they come to work and to put a percent next to each category and then circle the biggest. And if there's a tie, 
two pick one. And then we go down, how many said mission? How many said competition? And it's really interesting that an awful lot of them say paycheck because they've only been there a month and they have no ideas why they're there. <laughs> and student debt. <laughs> <laughs> and student debt. Yes, absolutely. And what we talk about is that that's understandable for now, but three or four years from now, if that's the reason, it should be somewhere up there, but not number one, then they're not in the right role. So then I ask them, what did I circle? And I have them guess, and they don't usually guess. The answer of what I circle when I was asked the same question was, without any other thought, I immediately circled customer. And then we talk about what Epic is founded on, what principles, why I circled the customer, and that for them to be good employees at Epic, which they all want to be, they have to understand that and go the same direction. I don't think you could grow an organization as large as Epic without focusing on the customer. So that makes perfect sense to me. Can I shift gears a little bit here? And I, I'm struck by the rattling off of all the duties that you, you took on in the early days and all those day-to-day -day tasks. And yet, obviously, in your role, you must stay focused on thinking strategically. So how do you stay focused on thinking strategically instead of getting mired in the day-to-day -day tasks that you had to be so early on? Well, I think that's always a challenge. Uh, every day, much of what comes in is not strategic, but it's urgent and you have to deal with it immediately. And I think the other thing is that to help some of your staff, even though it's not strategic to me, it's very important to them. And so I have to pay attention to that. I see it as a yellow brick road going to Oz, and you have to just intuitively see it and know where the yellow brick road is and just step on it and keep walking towards Oz. And I don't think it's too hard to see. The other thing I do is I, whenever I have a big decision to make, I think 25 to 50 years ahead. And then I go there, decide what would be good for those folks, and then I work backwards. That's awesome. There's so many questions that pop into my head. Maybe go back to culture a little bit. You alluded to having a number of young employees. How do you approach developing young employees? Do you have a philosophy um, specific to young employees? We don't really think of them as young employees. We hire people primarily by tests. We can tell who's an articulate, competent, and then we hire them. We treat the young employees just like if they were older. They get oriented, they get trained, and they get sent out to do a lot of work. And I think they thrive on the challenges. That makes sense. You know, all too often, these kind of questions end up with stereotypes about different generations, and I'm not hearing any hint of that from you. You know, all too often, you know, baby boomers think of millennials in one way, shape, or form, and vice versa. And I think what I'm not hearing from you are stereotypes of of those, but uh, just treating people as people, and that's that's pretty powerful. No matter when, in all the years I've been hiring people, they want to do a good job. They want to be recognized for it. They want to contribute to make the world a better place. That doesn't change. How about decision-making? Has that changed over the years? Has your decision-making process evolved um, in your time as head of the company? 
I think that I got involved in all sorts of silly decision-making things in the very beginning. I remember worrying about which hangers we should buy for the closet. <laughs> and I would never do that now. So yes, decision-making has changed. Since we don't have budgets, there's a lot of uh, decision-making abilities that lots of different people have. We have the philosophy of, if you need it, buy it. If you don't need it, don't buy it. It works. You know, you're speaking to a, an association whose members are, many of them are responsible for budgets. So can you touch on that a little bit more? How do you run an organization without a budget? Well, we do projections. Okay. And they usually come out to be fairly accurate. But if someone needs something, they have to buy it. Sure. That, yeah. uh, it all started when I used to get calls from people to say, I have $2 million left over in my budget. What can I buy? And I'd say, why don't you return it? And they'd say, they can't, because then they'd get $2 million less next year. Mm. So the opposite also happened. They would need it right now, but their budget didn't accommodate it. So I listened to that and figured, let's not go that path. You know, good for you. You know, it's it's very similar to something I used to say many times as a CFO is, would you spend this money if you were reaching into your own wallet or your own purse? And that's what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, and we do have people responsible for different amounts of what they can spend. And it's looked over by our finance people. If someone makes a mistake, especially when they have smaller amounts, because that's the learning time, then we pay for their mistake, but we go over why it is a mistake with them so that they learn and next time don't do that again. I really can appreciate that. I, I think it speaks to, to my heart, uh, having done many budgets over the years. The other thing I'm thinking about here is what's what's coming clear from you is that you still have the drive. You still have the drive to excel and to grow. How do you keep from thinking you've done everything there is to do with the company? <laughs> is that a joke? <laughs> no, I, you, you know, you come through as highly motivated and uh, always evolving the organization. And it, so, no, it's not. How do you keep from thinking that you, you've, you've achieved everything? And uh, how do you keep the drive? I spoke to a CEO of a health system once. And he said he's waiting for the time when everything is easy. He could just sit back and relax. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it? Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen in our lifetimes. No, there's always new areas. There's new types of projects we get into working with the payers. And right now we're really interested in uh, making sure that claims get paid more quickly and that adjudications are done very quickly so that the patient with a cancer problem can get seen right away. We're working with specialty labs and retail clinics. Then there's new types of customers all over the world, each with its different needs. New things in research like Cosmos that in my mind is going to change how healthcare works. So then there's all sorts of challenges. And now we're getting more acquainted with the government as new rules are proposed. And we're meeting with people in Congress. So it's a new and different life there too. Yeah, that's probably fodder for a whole nother podcast, isn't it? So here's what I'm hearing from you in your answer. And, and I... Uh, I love this concept as well. What I hear is is a, the word of curiosity, that if you're curious 
uh, and that spawns um, growth and, and development in your organization. And that's what I hear you saying. That's one of the most important words. To me, you've hit on a absolutely key word, Joe, that curiosity. And the thing that bugs me is I haven't yet found a test for it. You're right. It's not easily tested, but it might be the most important single trait in the hiring process. I think if you put curiosity with aptitude, the two together. It's pretty powerful. Well, I'm always sensitive to time from busy executives, and you've been gracious with your time today. I want to thank you for that and sharing your insights from starting and running such a dynamic organization in such a fascinating company. So thank you, Judy, for spending your time with me today. Thank you, Joe. My pleasure. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks to Mary Mirabelli and Rick Gundling for their help in making this production possible. Finally, we always welcome your feedback and invite you to reach out to us with your questions and comments at podcast at hfma.org. 